So before we start up talking about this episode proper, I have a question for you guys. How much of this episode do you remember? Honest question. Now, obviously, if you're going through with me, then, you know, you're like, well, I just watched this episode, so such and such and such and such. But, like, if you can recall, what did you remember about this before rewatching it, para exemple? Because I remembered basically nothing. Like, there was the bit with Riker's father, which I knew was a thing, and that was about all I had. There is actually a beat plot in this episode about Worf and how Worf is like, hey... I'm sad because it's the 10th anniversary of my Day of Ascension, Pain Sticks, right? In fact, I believe this is when Pain Sticks were introduced to Star Trek canon. I could be wrong about that. I bring this up because it feels like this is the type of episode I should really like. There's no threat of the week, and it's really just all about the dynamics between the characters and learning more about those characters, predominantly Worf and Riker, and with a little bit of Pulaski thrown in there, and with a very small amount of Troy and Wesley. Uh, thrown in as well. But instead, this is just a really boring, bland episode. Which goes to say something I've been talking about for years. It doesn't matter if you you know, have a good idea. It matters if you properly execute a good idea. Right? <clears throat> I really do wish I enjoyed this episode more than I do. I remember going through this just being like... Part of the problem is Gene Roddenberry. And I, I'm i sorry, but it is true. So this episode was posited, and they're like, all right, here. And then Roddenberry was like, well, no. And they're like, what? No, this is the future, remember. Humans don't, you know, humans have evolved past the need to do things like have drama or, you know, be sad or angry at each other. Okay. So all of the interpersonal conflict that could have been between Kyle and uh, William, <laughs> this feels weird to call him that, but, you know, between the two Rikers is gone because they can't have it in there. And it shows so much. Like, you could tell the original script was, like, it gets the two together, and you could tell there's just supposed to be something happening, and instead the two just kind of talk at each other for a very brief period of time. All of their scenes are very short. And then they move on to the next scene. Like, nothing happens. And it's just weird. And and several people spoke out against how frustrating this was. Even Rick Berman. To show that I am once again willing to be fair and measured in my thoughts. Remember, back when Rick Berman was actually a positive influence at Star Trek? That'll actually be coming up closer to season three and four, if I'm being honest. But anyways, point being, most of the people were just like, no, nah, you can't do that. But the Roddenberry box was being maintained. Now, I don't actually remember if the Roddenberry box has really come up yet in TNG. I'm not going to discuss it at length here, because there's another episode which is way better of a place to discuss it. But the simplicity of the Roddenberry box is, this is what allowed, is allowed, and this is what is not. Now, again, conceptually, I'm okay with that. If someone sat down and started writing a story within, say, the Imperium, my own setting, I would be like, okay... This is what you cannot do. I would actually do kind of the opposite of that. I'd be like, this is what you cannot do. Do not touch this box under any circumstances. Do not write these kind of things into my setting. They don't exist. Don't do that. Right? I'm sure most of you uh, who either have fan fiction or personal fiction or ideas or stories or whatever would have a similar reaction. So it's understandable. But one of the things about the Roddenberry box is that no conflict between humans. 
That is roughly how it's defined. I've heard several people define it different ways, um, including uh, Michael Piller, I want to say, is one of the people I've heard talk at most. I can picture his face. He's the guy behind Star Trek Nine. I've, uh, I've heard him talk at length about the Roddenberry box before in interviews, and he usually tries to, to say, place it as if it's a good thing. And I do agree, conceptually, that if you limit your writer's ability, they have to get creative to overcompensate, you know, to, not to overcome, to overcome and to compensate for that limitation, right? You know, in, that, that's just life. You know, when you have less, you tend to do more because you have to. Either that or you fail, one of the two. But I really think that that, the Roddenberry box was too restrictive, which again goes back to my earlier point. It's easy to have a good idea, but you need to approach it and present it right. And I think the Roddenberry box, my opinion, was a little bit too ironclad and included too many things it shouldn't have. And eventually those things would be tossed out the window, basically. But I digress. <clears throat> so I have um, three notes about all of Kyle and Riker's scenes. Three. They're boring. They have no chemistry. They don't say or do anything. There's no sincerity behind Kyle, and I don't feel any of the emotion coming off of Riker. And I'm just going to start calling him that. Is, that. is that cool? We've got Kyle and we've got Riker. I don't think Kyle deserves the name anyways. So, <clears throat> it's like... Mm, the structure of the episode also feels like they weren't sure how to pace out their scenes. I talk at length about proper pacing in my show, and pacing is usually about finding a particular rhythm or balance and counterbalance in scenes and events, right? Um, I usually I do this motion to describe proper pacing because not every movie or game or book has to be paced just like this, up and then down and then up and then down, but it has to be paced in a way that it balances itself out, right? That's, that's the idea behind proper pacing. Um, if you have a film or a game or a book or whatever, I'll actually use a direct example. Uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 is a game that has very bad pacing. It's and that's the whole game. It just wears you out after a while. When I was streaming it, I actually had viewers complain about having a headache because of the unrelenting nature of the game. That's not proper pacing. Uh, compared and contrast the earlier Modern Warfare games, which did have proper pacing, but I'm getting off topic. The point being, it felt like the person here wrote two scripts or the people, I suppose I should say, because uh, you know, two people were involved in writing the script, and they just mashed them together without thinking about which scenes went where. One of my favorite examples of that is there's a bit where uh, this, the, the B-plot with Worf, and, you know, Wesley comes in and says, hey, here's what's going on, and Jordy says, well, we're his family, we'll go ahead and do that, okay. And then it cuts away to a, you know, a Riker-related scene for the A-plot, and then it cuts back, and like no time has passed for the B-plot. They're still standing there in engineering, chatting about this, and it, they act like it's been a little while. Like, it's just the weirdest thing. They, they talk as if several minutes have passed, even though they're standing in basically the same spots, in the same area, talking about the same topic. I don't know, it's, it's very hard to explain. I'm sure if you ha are watching this with me, you understand what I mean by this. Um, and what's really sad is the, ob the theme of this episode is so obvious. It's about family, right? Worf's chosen family and Riker's birthed family. 
And those two themes perfectly gel with each other. And there's a wonderful contrast between the two. And there's so much you can do with both of those ideas. And they, they're just there. Let me give you a good example of what I mean. Because if anything, this episode feels disappointing. In fact, I need to make a note to record this as a rumination. Thank you to all of you who suggested that back during Outrageous Akana. Um, you know, I look at this episode and it's like, you have a good idea, but I don't care. To use an example, there's the scene where Worf is going through the pain stick thing. Now, credit to Michael Dorn. I think he did a good job with that scene. He also says several things in English and then in Klingon. Now, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Huh? No, Universal Translator. Yeah, no, we, we know that they like to play fast and loose with the Universal Translator. What I mean by that is I got the very strong impression that he was saying things in common or basic or English or whatever for the sake of his family. Right? I mean, think about it. If that was all Klingons, why would he ever switch out of Klingon? And to me, that tiny little detail was one of the only things about that scene, in addition to Doran's performance, that made me feel that scene. Because what that means is Worf, in addition to being horribly in pain, is going out of his way to include these people who have done this for him into his circle. He is embracing them in his own particular alien idiom. And I liked that. But then what happens at the end is he collapses there and all of them just stand awkwardly and look at each other like they don't know what to do. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if legitimately what happened there is the director did not give them direction and just rolled the camera. And so they're all, all the actors are standing there like, what should we do? Because that's exactly what it feels like. Couldn't you picture... Jordy, the guy who went, went flat out said so casually and naturally, I do like that, you know, we're his family, just kneeling down and not, not the hand, he's offering his arm so Worf can, right? Couldn't you just picture that? And then, have, and then once Jordy does that, then Data immediately follows suit and then Wesley comes down and Worf takes an extra second with Wesley. And, you know, gives just like the, this tiniest bit of a smile to him. Just a little one. Like, he just, he, it's not actually a smile. He looks less surly than usual. Like, and then Pulaski comes down. You know. Wouldn't that have added to so much more of that scene? Having them reach out to him as he has reached out to them. And, and just kind of completing the dynamic there. Instead of... Like, you can just hear going through the actors' minds. Should I, can I go to the buffet yet? Is that where we're at? I'm really hungry. <sighs> I wonder if I need a vacuum tonight. I need to check when I get home. You know, it's... <laughs> there's nothing going on there. <sighs> also, I feel like a lot of the dialogue doesn't earn the weight of the scenes. Especially Wesley. Again, no offense to Will Wheaton, but the way he is presented in this episode is just irritating. This is actually one of the first episodes in a while, since season one, uh, that I've looked at Wesley and been like, damn, brat, <laughs> you know? This is especially true in his first inclusion, where he walks up to Worf and is like, hey, oh my gosh. And Worf's just like, oh, shut up, be gone. Um, now, I also want to, I know this is going to sound really minor, but I want to complain about the music. The music basically has this one kind of somber... 
a piece that should feel emotional is what I'm going to call it. It plays twice by the 11 minute mark. This episode is really silent and more so than it probably should be. And as I've said many, many times, silence in a game or a movie or a show is not the problem. It is the usage of silence, music direction, that tends to matter. And it felt like what the episode kept doing was there's this massive scene of silence, and then there'd be a little musical cue in the transition, like as they're outroing and introing into the next scene, and then silence, and then outro and intro, and then silence. Again, I find myself thinking that they just didn't know how to splice these together, and that was just done to help cover the scene transitions between the A and the B plot. <sighs> so Kyle and Pulaski uh, have some decent scenes together. And I say decent. I actually have said this before uh, on about this show, actually, where I was like, they have good chemistry together. But as I realized it, I'm actually wrong about that. I referred to this earlier with regards to Picard, and I can't remember her name right now, forgive me. In here, it's Pulaski who has the good chemistry with herself, basically, and then Kyle who does not. Um, Diana Muldaur, or Muldaur, I'm, I never was able to figure that out, and I do apologize, but I do think she does a good job in this episode. She actually presents herself pretty well, and she acts like someone who is still good friends with someone who she still has romantic feelings for. That's a nice little niche to hit there, a hard hit niche to hit, but she does a really good job of it, in my opinion. In fact, she was one of the highlights of this episode, if you can believe it. But it felt like she was acting alongside a piece of cardboard. Have you ever seen a play or a show or a book or a movie? Books don't count, sorry, I don't know why I said book. A game or a movie, where the animation is artificially uh, ro robotic or unnatural. I can actually give you an example of this. Emissary. DS9, Emissary, um, there's a scene where Dax starts expositing to them. And what she does is she's got her hands behind her back like this, and she's walking forward, and she's kind of looking down. Now, we know I'm not making fun of her. She was a very new actress. Um, this is very new for her. So what she did made sense, and actually she covered it pretty well. But it was still obvious that what she was doing was walk to this step, say a line, walk to this step, say a line, walk back this way, say a line. She was just walking to her marks, right? And one of the things my old uh, director, back when I was in theater, used to say is, you always got to follow the marks. But if it's obvious you're following the marks, you need to try and smooth that over a little bit. Um, and she did, of course, get better. Again, no complaints about her. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean that because that's kind of how Kyle felt in this episode. Like, he just didn't know how to present himself. And so his blocking was weird. His body language was really, really fake. I, I don't have a better word for that. And his actual lines of dialogue are basically, I'm awesome, with none of the power or emotion behind him. We're supposed to see someone who is this arrogant prick who has been driving himself for all these years and is legitimately proud of his son. Someone who, despite all his massive accomplishments, is actually in awe of his son's accomplishments and genuinely feels like he might be surpassed, and he's frightened about that. But at the same time, that fear instills within him greater pride that his son could accomplish what he never could and be this great person who has this great potential and this great future ahead of him. And all of that subtlety is just absent the actor's performance. Right? 
I'm going to stop bashing on Kyle Riker. I just want to mention one last point about it. There's a scene where the two are fighting, and I don't remember the name of the combat they're using. Forgive me. And so they just... And... I don't... I. It's my job to analyze this stuff. It's my job to present this stuff as well as I can. But I'm actually at a loss for words here. Like, my note here just says MST3K. Because that's what was going through my head when I was watching it. I could just picture the guy and the two robots down there making fun of the entire fight. Because it was awful. Like, even the choreography, which, granted, Star Trek isn't really known for its excellent choreography. But it was bad by Star Trek standards. And the dialogue they were spitting at each other it reminded me of the first time I actually did director's work. Uh, this was a very long time ago, back in school. Uh, it was part of an outreach program. It was, it, it was part of my own curriculum, I should say, because I had to do work as a director and as a sound designer and as a lighting uh, designer in order to uh, you know, complete my theater course, right? And... I remember they, they would bring in much younger kids, and they would be the ones who we, I would be directing. Uh, you know, like, uh, I guess that would have been about six years younger than me. And I remember watching them perform, and they would say their lines correctly. Like, that wasn't the complaint, but they were saying the lines, right? It's like a step past just reading the script. Like, we, we all know what that's like when a voice actor is just reading the script and there's nothing behind them. It was just like, it, you could tell that it was taking all of his effort in order to just speak. And there's nothing behind any of the words. And I actually, I felt that way about Riker, too. And as I'm looking at that, I'm like, okay, I know Jonathan Frakes is a better actor than that. I have seen him already be a better actor than that. And that was, this is when it really finally clicked for me, the whole Roddenberry box thing, when I saw that fight between the two of them. Because you can tell that fight is supposed to be the culmination of their confrontational relationship. The chosen family that never actually chose to be, I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong, the blood family that never chose to be a chosen family. There we go. Sorry, saying that wrong. And you could tell that this was supposed to be the two of them reaching out and finally connecting for the first time in 15 years. And instead it's just two guys beating each other up and then one of them says, I love you. And the other one's like, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm probably being boring. Let me move on. Um, let me give a contrast. How would I do that? Compare and contrast the absolute lack of chemistry between Kyle and Riker to the, the, to the very brief but very natural chemistry between O'Brien and Riker. Much earlier in the episode, there's a bit where the two of them are sitting there, and Riker's just like this. And, again, credit to Frakes, he's doing some good body language. And O'Brien's just like, <laughs> so, girl, career. And Riker doesn't respond to the career part. So then O'Brien says, with just a little bit different of a tone and, and inflection, career? Ah, family. Ah, family. And it's just, it's, it feels natural. And I know that's a very small scene, but little bits like that are what really help to make episodes, in my opinion, when it comes to television. When it feels like two people are talking with each other rather than two character, two actors who are reading lines to each other. 
That's the difference right there. The, the more you can hit the former, the better. And obviously you're not always going to succeed because there's always budget issues and there's always time issues and there's always meddling with the script like there was with this episode. And there's always, you know, guest star problems. But God sakes, that right there, reach for that, you know? Um, now, I haven't talked about, like, anything about the Worf thing because I just I don't have much to say about that either. It's like, I again, conceptually, yes, of course we're his family. Except the problem is Jordy says that so naturally, and this is midway through season two. I know that sounds weird, but I'm not sure they've earned the fact that they are just naturally and automatically Worf's family in what is effectively a year and a half of service. Like, if this was a little bit further on, sure, I could totally buy that. Instead, if I could nitpick a little bit, I would have, I would have replaced the word family there. Instead, have Jordy say, well, we're his friends. We'll just have to do, right? And then that would make it so that later, when they actually reach out to Worf, and then he does this, and he reaches back out to them, and they do this thing, right? Then it, it basically they have leveled up, for lack of a better way to put it. In that way, they have gone from friends to earning some degree of familial connection, the chosen family. But instead, they're just like, yeah, of course he's family. What? Like, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, anyways... Um, I also want to say, and I really don't want to step into this, but I have to comment on it because it bothered me when Troy and Pulaski just kind of man-hated for a little bit. Um, now, I don't mean that in a stirring thing. Uh, and in fact, I say man-hated, that's probably an inaccurate term because I don't know what it's called. Uh, it's basically the opposite of boy talk. So I guess just girl talk, right? I'm going to have to explain this, aren't I? God, I don't want to get into this. All right. How many of you have heard of a game called Final Fantasy XV? For those of you who haven't, I'm going to walk you through this a little bit. There are four main characters in that game, and all of them are male, right? Now, some people are like, about that. But the stated reason for that, which I agreed with, by the way, was that guys talk to other guys differently than they do around guys and girls. There's just something different about the male-to-male connection, and they wanted that kind of character dynamic and that kind of dialogue. And I supported their reasoning behind that. I still do, having played the game uh, more than once, actually. You know, absolutely. So girls are the same way, in my experience. Uh, girls will talk differently to other girls than, than they will to, you know, uh, guys, right? So the scene between Troy and Pulaski is girls talking to girls, Right? What bothers me a little bit about it is it's immensely belittling. Now, I don't know how accurate that is. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, I'm not actually a girl. And I don't know how uh, on point that is, but it felt weird because in the, con- in the confines of the episode, rather than me feeling the dynamic between Troy and Pulaski, which I felt like I should have, it just felt like the episode paused for a minute to be like, ha <laughs> guys, and then move on. Maybe that was the point, I don't know. But to make this clear, it doesn't bother me that girls would talk badly about guys or guys about girls. That's life, whatever. What bothers me about the scene is it felt like the scene had no other point to make. Which, again, kind of goes back to my overall predominant problem with this episode. It feels like it's got ideas and absolutely no idea what to do with them. So, in try- if I was designing this episode, for example, or or you know, script editing or whatever, I'd look at this, or directing even, I'd look at this and be like, oh, okay. 
This is to show another dynamic because we've got Worf and crew, which is predominantly male, and Kyle and Riker, which is predominantly male. Let's show a female side. Let's show both of these dynamics, the Kyle one and the Worf one, from the perspective of the women. That makes perfect sense to me. And then I would reach out to actual women writers and say, okay, help me out here because I'm not a girl again, right? Instead, it feels like the scene is just there. And that bothered me. Um, so, yeah, let's get to the final point here. The episode really, if there was actually a true main plot of this episode, it would actually be the fact that Riker has to decide whether or not to accept promotion or to not. Let's talk about that. So, first of all, whether or not Riker would accept that promotion is probably the definition of fake drama at this era of television. I hate to say it, but it's true. Nowadays, with the way television has changed and moved and how the dogs bark in the background, you might actually think that, okay, we've reached a point where Riker leaving the show is more feasible, Riker temporarily leaving the show is more feasible, or Riker deciding to, for example, um, like Riker leaves the ship but stays on the show. Like, that's actually an idea that's been posited many times, that they, as, as kind of a hypothetical what they could have with Star Trek. Have the show keep going on all of the, the actors, but have the characters basically split up rather than all being on the Enterprise. Now, there are issues with that, of course, and if, this was the late 80s and early 90s, so television just kind of didn't really work that way back then, for the most part. But unfortunately, as a consequence of all of this, there's no drama with Riker, will he leave? And they spend the entire episode bringing it up, like every five or six minutes, and sometimes spending entire scenes dedicated to it. And I I wrote down a, a note right here at the end. It's, it, it's weird how the entire episode's main point, Riker's promotion, is settled in 20 seconds. And then I stopped myself and I said, wait, Lore, you try to be accurate when you can, Let's not be exaggerative. So I rewound the episode and I counted. It was actually, depending on how you define it, 17 or 45 seconds. Yes, really. 17 seconds if you count just the, oh, I've decided to stay. 45 if you count the follow-up question of Picard to him. That's it. 45 seconds at most. And that's the other reason I call that fake drama. Will he leave the ship now? It is right up there with the will-they-get-a-home-again plots that bothered me in early season one of Voyager. But I don't want to end on a bad note. I do have two little bits of praise for this episode. Really. Because, number one, there's this great scene where Picard... Uh, excuse me, where Riker is talking to Picard. And Riker says... You know, right walks in and, and is like starts the question in a certain way. It's a kind of a meandering way. And Picard just cuts right to the heart of the issue and says, You're asking me for advice. Well, I could lay them out the options out for you in a crude format. And then Picard proceeds to ha give one of the most eloquent portrayals of this choice that I've I've basically ever seen across fiction. He does a really excellent job of stating the pluses of both sides. Staying on the Enterprise is a unique position. You are the second-in-command of the flagship of the Federation, and in addition, basically the mainlinership. Like, the Enterprise does stuff that nobody else does. The Enterprise has attention that nobody else has. Simply being, serving on the Enterprise is a massive career boost. 
and in addition to that, could actually be con conceived as a career terminator. In a good way, I mean. In other words, they're, they're, the idea that once you make it to the Enterprise, you're good. You, you don't have to keep going up. You're happy where you are because you're on the Enterprise, right? You made it. You've successfully reached the goalpost. Congrats. And he's not just any else person serving on it. He is second in command and functionally the military leader of the ship, although that will kind of change over time, but whatever, right? I'm with that. But then on the other hand, you could have your own ship. It won't be as prestigious. It won't be as, as powerful. You will not have the career focus or the, you know, the, the prestige or fame or glory or whatever, but you will have your ship, and you will slowly morph and change that ship to be your ship. And you'll put your own unique touch on it. And you'll be able to challenge things and do things that you would never be able to do here on the Enterprise. I like his presentation of those two choices. It's probably one of the only scenes that made me feel like this was an actual choice. Because otherwise it's like, why would he take captain of some other ship when he could just stay on the Enterprise, right? Then there's a follow-up scene, almost immediately afterwards, with Riker and Troy. And again... Credit where it is due, there's some good dynamic and chemistry between uh, Marina Sirtis and Jonathan Frakes. And there's, some good, there's even some good facial acting, you know. And, of course, she's the one who has to start crying. But whatever, the, the two of them just, yeah, I'm sad. The idea of leaving here and leaving you is a big deal. It doesn't even necessarily have romantic tint to it. And I point that out because if you consider they're sad at the idea of parting because they're Amzadis or lovers, it's there. But also if you consider it because they've grown into becoming good friends again. They've reconnected in a way they haven't in years after they both accidentally, basically, got reassigned to the Enterprise. Or, excuse me, assigned to the Enterprise. And now they're at the risk of losing that reconnection, that rekindled friendship. Right? It was a good scene. I liked that. And because I like to critique rather than just complain, I would have had... I would have had Riker go ahead and accept the post in kind of like an alternate TNG and have him still be present in several upcoming episodes, but basically do the split focus thing like I was talking about. Have some of these script ideas which don't necessarily have to involve T you know, the Enterprise D's characters be on Riker's ship with his other guest stars, with his other characters' actors. Now I know you, you couldn't do this back then, but just hear me out. From a purely creative perspective, I also like the idea that Riker's ship would have been one of the ones that uh, I'd have to think about the specifics, but you know, basically had issues. Uh, lost people or was damaged or whatever during the conflict with the Borg at Best of Both Worlds, and then have Riker basically brought back to the Enterprise because it seemed like a natural fit to move him back to the Enterprise in order to basically replace the loss of Picard, literally coming back as captain because he is a captain, and then have Shelby be his first officer and kind of reconnect those points back there. And to go even further with it, when Thomas enters the picture later on, I would go ahead and have William basically leave the show at that point and have Thomas be the Riker we have and be Jonathan Frake's character henceforth. This is all just my opinion. But I think they could have done more with this rather than 45 seconds. I hope you've enjoyed my meandering talks about this episode, and I hope to see you guys next time.